Let's pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Today I want to speak about courage in life's defining moments. Courage in life's defining moments. Have you ever stood quietly by, afraid to uh, get involved while someone else got ripped apart with an unfair or untrue accusation? It could be a colleague, a neighbor, a classmate, a companion, a friend, a partner. Maybe the boss was ripping and that person apart and you or I kept silent because we didn't want to lose our job. Maybe it was a close friend telling an inappropriate sexist or racist joke and you or I overlooked it out of fear of losing that relationship. Worse, you have might have or I might have lived through a scene on the flip side. Maybe we were the one getting ripped and hoping anyone, just anyone would come and rescue us, but no one did. Using unseen or hidden cameras, paid actors and actresses, scripted dialogues and stage settings a few years ago, there was a reality show called What Would You Do? Any of you saw that show? What Would You Do? And it captured the reaction and the responses of just everyday people faced with dilemmas that called them to speak up, to take action, to, or to just mind your own business. From behind the scene, the host observed and then interviewed each participant and tried to understand their motivation to act or their motivation not to act, to speak or not to speak, as they faced these situations in life that asked the question, what would you do? The plot driving the story of Esther and the question before Esther, you and me today is what would you do? Will Esther, will you and will me, with courage, seize the moment that is upon us today, or will she, you and me, like the not so good Samaritan in the New Testament, cross to the other side of the road? The dramatic story in the text unfolds in the Persian city of Susa, about 100 miles north of the Persian Gulf. Susa is in Iran, near the border of Iraq. It was located at the time, it was the location, rather, at the time for the winter home of the king. Susa was about 300 miles south of the capital, near the, the warm climate. An entire race was about to get wiped out because one Jewish man refused to bow down in the presence, not of the Persian king, but the second in command to the Persian king who was snubbed and in his vain and vindictive way decided not to kill one person, but to annihilate an entire race of people, every Jewish person 
in the empire and only one person stood between the Persian official and the execution of his plan. And that person was Esther. This is part one of a two-part sermon because it's way too long. So I'm giving you the background today just so to kind of set it up. The book of Esther is part of the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Old Testament known as the writings. As far as biblical drama is concerned, Esther is really different. First, Esther and Ruth are the only two books of the Bible named after a woman. Another unique characteristic about Esther is like the Songs of Solomon. If you have read the Songs of Solomon is that the name of God and God is never mentioned. Go back and read those two books. The name of God and God is never mentioned in those two books. Some scholars suggest it's not mentioned in the Song of Solomon because the book is an allegory of the love between God and the nation of Israel. The, the absence of the name of God is especially noticeable in Esther because the king of Persia, the name of the king of Persia is mentioned over 100 times and yet the name of God is not mentioned once. For some biblical scholar that this needs to be revised. <laughs> Other biblical scholars, however, point out that even though the real hero and the power behind each scene is never mentioned by name, God remains to be the main character in the story in the book of Esther. Every page of Esther bears testimony to God. Behind each scene, one discovers this divine intervention and shadow of the Almighty dictating offstage, kind of orchestrating things as they're happening throughout the entire book. Esther then can be seen as really as a tribute of the invisible God whose invincible plans are constantly being worked out. The invisible God whose invincible plans are constantly being worked out. You know, if I was in another setting, I would hear a bunch of amens right there. <laughs> Though God may not sometimes appear on the scene, and although sometimes God may appear to be absent, God's plans, according to Esther, cannot be derailed and cannot be blocked. Scripture declares that this is not only true for Esther, but it's also true for you and for me. It's not only true for Esther and the Jewish people, but it's also true for you and for me. The Old Testament book of Esther is about much more than the life of Esther, though, and could probably be called the queen of prayer, Esther, the queen of fasting, the queen of strength, the queen of courage, and the queen of beauty. It, it, it is this story of the experience of the Jewish people in a severe crisis, in a severe crisis. And I would dare to say that our world is probably in a severe crisis right now. One writer defines the word crisis as an event over which we have no control and did not cause. An event over which we have no control and did not cause. But a crisis can also be a source of change. A crisis can also be a source of growth. A crisis can also be a source of development. You've seen it in the lives of others and possibly even in your own life. 
The crisis of smoking, which caused cancer, can cause someone to stop that behavior. The crisis of kidney can cause kidney failure. Playing around in school and failing can cause a crisis in your educational experience. Dr. Miles Monroe is the first person I heard who claimed that in the Chinese uh, vocabulary, the word crisis also means opportunity or possibility. There's much debate over whether that is accurate, but if it is, it is interesting and an interesting concept. In addition to God, five influential characters are working behind the scenes, making up and supporting the cast of the story in the book of Esther. And I want to give you those five right now. First, there's King Artaxerxes, king in the text. He's the most powerful man in the world, but also he's very reckless, he's very extravagant, and he's easily manipulated. History has recorded many such powerful persons with those kind of character traits. Some were political, business, and even religious leaders. Reckless, and especially dangerous because it was absolute recklessness especially when he passed the law. There were no checks and balances for the king, even if his law was disastrous. Have we experienced people like that today, whether it's in passing laws or appointing people to Supreme Court? Not only was the king powerful, the king was reckless, the king was extravagant, and the king was easily manipulated, but he also appeared to be absent-minded. When a servant saved his life, he forgot all about it. In modern terms, being thrown under the bus is what we would use to describe this king's behavior. The king is unreliable, with nothing and no one to keep him from making disastrous decisions. And then there's Vashti, or Vashti, is the first female character we see in the book of Esther. And the story begins with her sitting as the queen. She makes a cameo appearance in a short scene and with only a few lines and then she is divorced for disobeying a direct command of the king. The order was for her to go and flaunt her naked body before these drunken men to appease them just for the king. And she refused to do it and her refusal was seen as a threat to the male domination in Persian society. So she was kicked out. And then there was Haman, or Amman in Persian, chief official, second only to the king. The story of Haman is a reminder of how pride can destroy each of us because it certainly destroyed him. Then there was Mordecai. He was the son of the Benjamite and the older cousin of Esther whom had adopted and raised her as a daughter. While sitting at the gate of the palace, Mordecai discovered an assassination plot by the two of the king's CIA agents. And Mordecai informed the king of this conspiracy. And then he was elevated in a position. He received the blessing for his loyalty. And finally, there is Esther, a Jewish orphan who became queen of Persia. 
and would risk her life to save the Jewish people from annihilation. She lived about 470 BC, was a Jew and of the tribe of Benjamin and was born into slavery in a foreign land toward the end of the Babylonian captivity. Her name means star. Its origin comes from the root name of the goddess Ishtar. Esther was also known as Hadash, which means myrtle. Myrtle branches signifying peace and thanksgiving. Her, her parents died when she was young, leaving her as an orphan. She was brought up by her cousin, guardian and advisor, Mordecai. That's the setting of the seed. Everybody needs a Mordecai in their life. Timothy had Paul, Ruth had Naomi, Samson had Delilah, Bathsheba had David, Esther had Mordecai, for better or for worse, all of us, all of these people rather, met someone who influenced their path, someone who influenced their life decisions. I wonder today, who might you be influencing? I wonder today, who am I influencing? Who's influencing your life? Who are you going to counsel or who is counseling you? On the surface, Esther is a simple story about the right people found themselves in the right place at the right time to head off a tragedy against the Jewish people it, in a way no one could have seen coming. But while the story may be simple, its plot is loaded with trickery, humor, close calls, and surprising conclusions. This story of Esther. The writer is unknown. Among the many suggested are Mordecai, Ezra, or Nehemiah, all of whom were alive and living in the Persian time. The book's content indicates that the writer was a Jew living in Persia because the writer was familiar with Jewish festivals of Purim. With that fact, the Jews thought of themselves as a distinct people. The writer is also familiar with the Persian custom, and that means the high-ranking officials. I told you this is a lot of background to the story, but we'll get it all together. The author of the book, the king hosting a six-month royal celebration. That's where the story takes place, six-month royal celebration. It was more like a six-month frat house party for his kingdom. And at the end of this celebration, the king holds this week-long banquet for all of the capital city citizens of Susa. After a gluttonous drinking binge, and the king ordered the queen Vashti to appear before his court so that his guests could admire her beauty and her body. Well, for some unexplained reason, Queen Vashti didn't, did the unthinkable, and she refused to do what the king had ordered her to do. And the king moved that the queen blatant disregard for his authority has given him no other choice than to banish her from the kingdom. Saying no to a request of the king was unheard of and considered an act of insubordination and embarrassed and rage and fearful that the queen's action would give other women in the kingdom 
idea that this is the way to behave or permission to behave like that. The king sought counsel of his princesses who advised him to dethrone Queen Vashti, banish her from the kingdom and select another queen. To be banished was the equivalent of death. Because even though she was remained a part of the king's harem, she would never be allowed to marry or have a family because of her defiant action. Queen Vashti is often portrayed as a rebellious character in the story. But if the request of the king required her to do something that was against her conscience, didn't she not morally have a right to say no? Vashti is a bold woman appear to have lost her position because she refused to give in to the demands being placed upon her by society. I wonder if I could take those kinds of stands if my back is against the wall. She refused to give in to the demands placed upon her by society, so I'm willing to risk my position. I'm willing to risk the place of power. Ironically, her punishment gives her exactly what she wanted, to no longer appear before the king. After a while, the king regrets not having a queen, and his nobleman suggested that, on, uh, that he goes out and find another uh, uh, a queen. No, uh, and so he started this search for another queen. The king agrees to the search and begins for the estimated, at the time, scripture suggests that it was 15 million women. <laughs> 15 million women in the kingdom. This is the point of the story where we're first introduced to Esther and her guardian and her advisor, Mordecai. Mordecai and Esther lived in Susa one of the capitals of Persia empire and around 475 before Christ, a hundred years previously, the Jewish people had been overturned by the Chaldeans. 50 years later, the Persians conquered Babylon and Jews were allowed to return home. See, I'm giving you all this history because I don't know if you've ever read the book of Esther. <laughs> it's a rich story and to be so uniquely focused on a woman the entire book. It's a rich story. But some Jews chose to stray from where they were. They had discovered that God didn't just live in the land of Israel and in, or in America, so God was everywhere. And Mordecai and Esther were among the Jews who strayed. And upon the recommendation of Mordecai, Esther enters this beauty contest of 15 million women to search for a new queen. When it's her turn to go before the king, the Bible says that she gained admiration of the king who made her his new queen. I don't know what the entire process is. The text doesn't actually say, but I, 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 I would imagine like some of the auditions I've been on, it's like a cattle call, just move, move, move. You stop, move, move, move. You stop, move, move, move. It's a Hollywood rags to riches story, but it doesn't end there. 
You see, living as a Jew at the heart of the Persian Empire was risky business. And it is at this point in the story that we are introduced to Haman. Haman is the villain in the story. There's no love lost between Haman and Esther's uncle Mordecai. It is an understatement to say that he despised or they despised each other. And so that's where we'll probably try and pick up next week. I feel like I've just given you a whole lot of stuff to talk about. But Haman is an evil man and he's the antagonist and he's promoted to what is considered like the prime minister. And he wants to use that power. He wants to use that authority. He wants to use that position to destroy the Jewish people. And that's where we'll pick up next week. Cliffhanger. We'll pick up and we'll see what Esther does and how she stood up in this time of courage and see if we're equipped or if we're willing to do the same in those times when we're challenged to stand up. Let's pray. God, there's so much going on in this, in this story. It's, it is, it's so rich. It's so full of potential and possibility and power to transform our lives, transform the way we think, transform the way we approach life and situations and how we speak up, how we stand up, how we, how we live our faith. And so I ask you, dear God, for the strength as we move ahead this week, as we kind of process just some about some of the information that I shared Help us to think about how we would speak, stand, or be courageous in some of those life-defining moments that we encounter. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.